You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Hi, David. Hello, Bob. How you doing? Pretty good. Good. Let me introduce this. I'm Robert Wright. This is The Wright Show, available on both streaming video and via audio podcast. You're David Sloan Wilson, well-known biologist. You're at uh, Binghamton University. Is that the official name? Yep, it likes to be called Binghamton University, and it is part of the State University of New York. Used to be called SUNY Binghamton, right? That's right. Okay, so um, we're going to talk about uh, your pretty new book, This View of Life, Completing the Darwinian Revolution, and Related Matters. Yep. Now, the great thing about you, David, is that you're you're by nature kind of an evangelist, so I don't really have to, like, plan out this conversation much. I can just push a button, you'll start sermonizing, and I'll interrupt you every once in a while. In fact, you said uh, via email you had a plan for the conversation. First, we would talk about stuff you and I agree on, and then you, we would move to stuff that we disagree on. So sounds like, you know, we'll just follow your plan. I would start out with one question. So I was kind of surprised. In the book, you compare this book to another book, and I forget the term you use, whether you call this a successor to it or what, but... Uh, it's Pierre Teilhard de Chardin's The Phenomenon of Man. Yep. And the reason I say I'm surprised is because, you know, as you know, a lot of scientists don't think too highly of him. He's, uh, he's thought of as this kind of Catholic mystic who had this like visionary idea of human society evolving toward this kind of superorganism status. The noosphere was like what he called the thinking envelope of the earth. I mean, I think it's hard to deny that he was prescient because he did see that technology was drawing in us into something that would seem like a global brain. But still, he's very poetic, kind of mystical. He thought, of course, he was as a as a as a Christian theologian. He thought evolution had a purpose. That's kind of frowned on in a lot of biological circles. He was also a scientist. He was a paleontologist, but. You're familiar with the problem of invoking Teilhard de Chardin, right? And yet, you say that your book uh, has a very close connection to his book, The Phenomenon of Man, right? Indeed. It causes us to rethink such things as a superorganism. What does it mean to be part of something larger than ourselves? Um, how that takes place at a small scale. And there, I think, is going to be part of our zone of agreement that it's part of the human species to be tribal. I've been listening to some of your uh, past uh, interviews with people like Paul Bloom and Richard uh, Rangham. Uh, you know we're a very groupy species. That's part of our zone of um, agreement. Uh, you're familiar with colleagues such as uh, Jonathan Haidt, who talk about the hive mind. And so the idea of, uh, and uh, Tilhard uh, described that as tiny grains of thought, which then coalesced into larger and larger uh, thought entities, and what would that be but an increasing scale of society, and what would the Amiga point be but um, but um, the final rung of a, of a global, basically cooperative um, uh, cooperative unit? So that's how the the spiritual language of Teilhard maps on to questions that can be given a purely scientific formulation, and as to whether evolution can be conscious. That's one of the things I look forward to talking about. Now, that became taboo as part of the modern synthesis, primarily in the context of genetic evolution. Uh, but once we start thinking seriously about cultural evolution as an evolutionary process, then, I mean, really, <laughs> it does have a conscious dimension. Well, yeah, so, but, but nobody would deny that, right? 
Well, uh, Bob, uh, yes, they do, because when you say, can evolution be conscious? And I've actually solicited essays on this topic, a whole series of essays on this topic in our online magazine, This View of Life. Um, can evolution be conscious? And yeah. all, all kinds of distinguished biologists acted as if I'd given them a wedgie. Well, actually, that's partly because I think, I'm not sure they understand exactly what you mean by it. In fact, I had a conversation with Massimo Pugliucci, uh, about your your essay in that series asserting that evolution, I think, or suggesting that evolution, um, in a sense, was conscious. And, and Massimo, and I agreed that the answer was no, but, I, but I'm now thinking maybe that's because we took you to be saying something other than you, meant, that, that, than, uh, you were saying with the question. I mean, when, when, when you ask, is evolution conscious like that, I think people, uh, a lot of people think, you mean, is it like something to be natural select, selection, right? Does natural selection itself have a subjective dimension? Is it, which is, by the way, not completely crazy, because after all, you could view, uh, and this is somewhere we, we, we agree, I think, you, you could uh, draw a comparison between, on the one hand, the unfolding and maturation of an organism from an egg, and on the other hand, the unfolding of the entire envelope of life, biosphere plus noosphere, from the primordial piece of DNA or whatever. And if you buy that comparison, you could say, well, if the animal is, con- is conscious, has subjective experience as it's maturing, maybe the whole damn system could have a consciousness. And it's possible. But, but I think that's what Massimo and I took you to be saying, but now I'm thinking you're not saying that because to, to say that cultural evolution has a conscious dimension, in other words, I intentionally, I intentionally consciously invent something, that's a very different thing, right? Yeah. And basically what we did with that series was open up a conversation that really needs to be opened up. And in the introduction to the series, we said, let's demystify this word consciousness by listing some of its synonyms. And when you list, go to the dictionary and list some of the synonyms of consciousness, you get some more kind of mundane words, like intentional, for example, uh, planned. Uh, when we consciously do something, basically we're following some kind of intentional plan. And so there's a more humble definition of consciousness. And it's at that point, then, when you look at human cultural evolution and human learning, individual learning, then it's not entirely conscious. In fact, it needs to be more conscious. but Certainly it has a conscious component. And then when you consider the Baldwin effect, the idea that basically the slow process of of genetic evolution leads with the fast process of learning, I'm sorry, the the slow process of genetic evolution follows where the fast process of learning leads, then it's at that point that you, first of all, you have to get consciousness to individuals in some sense or else the word would have no meaning. So organisms, at least some organisms, uh, you have to say they are conscious in what they what they do. And then if that individual consciousness actually feeds back on the evolutionary process, which is what the Baldwin effect always was, then there you go. There you go. And one of the things that calls it okay, okay, but but just to be clear, you don't you're not talking about the more exotic scenario I trotted out where natural selection itself has a subjective side. It is like something to be natural selection? Mm, possibly not. Possibly not. No, nope, I don't think so. Um, you, you, don't again, think, you don't think that's the case? It's, it's not what you're talking about? Is that what you're saying? No, it's not what I'm talking about. Okay. What I'm talking about, uh, first of all, when you open up a conversation like this, many voices come into the 
conversation. And that was quite interesting. For example, is consciousness limited to physical life? <laughs> I, I would kind of say no, but, but actually some of the essays were fairly persuasive that, um, that uh, we can extend the, and of course, for, for a big word like consciousness, there will always be multiple meaning, meanings. It will never reduce to a single meaning. And so, no, but, but I, I do like Thomas Nagel's phrase that, you know, to be conscious is for it to be like something to be that thing. I think that's a kind of a commonsensical understanding that people can latch onto and that, and that cuts away a lot of the, you know, the more um, kind of, uh, elaborate but not particularly useful definitions of consciousness. I mean, it is like something to be me. That's what I mean when I say I'm conscious. I assume it's like something to be my dog. Could be like something to be my computer. Not impossible, but I'll never know. Sure. So I fall back upon everyday usages as much as philosophical reflections. Uh, Not that I'm disparaging philosophers. In fact, I'm depending them on the Twitterverse at this moment, but but um, uh, everyday definitions are so useful. So when we say, you know, he consciously did this, he intended to do it, it was a conscious plan, I think this is what I'm trying to ask the question. Can the evolutionary process be like that? And when we think that uh, conscious agents, which anyone has to agree that agents qualify as conscious when they follow their plans and, and, and so on, that that actually can rub off on the evolutionary um, uh, process, then there's a very interesting sense in which evolution can be conscious. That means it can have a direction. It need not be directionless, purposeless. It is not the case that variation is always arbitrary with your span, only the environment does the selecting. It causes you to think that, that how much the study of evolution became restricted, constricted, during the 20th century, what we call the modern synthesis was actually a very impoverished, constricted view of evolution that left so much out and became so gene-centric that now what's happening now is that we're going back to basics and we're defining evolution in a way which is not joined at the hip with a particular inheritance mechanism of genes. Okay. We're now recognizing that there's multiple inheritance mechanisms. Okay. Okay, there's a lot there. Let, let's um, back up and, and, and try to clarify a few things. First of all, so an example in your view of evolution being conscious in a meaningful sense would be if, if a human being consciously, intentionally creates something that then itself changes the course of evolution. And, of course, as soon as humans began inventing tools, that changed the course of evolution. It, it, it for example, would... It might lead to the selection of genes that, that uh, uh, for being good at wielding tools, for being good at wielding weapons or other kinds of tools. So that that's an example. First of all, just to be clear, that's an example, one kind of example of conscious evolution. Is that right? Uh, sure, although I want to distinguish that there's when you look at gene culture coevolution, yeah. often due to indirect effects and unforeseen consequences and so on, uh, 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 people might do something and, and cause evolution to go into a direction which is actually not the intended direction. Uh, I mean, I always love folk tales where you, you, you get to make a wish and then you end up regretting the wish. 
So often I think we make conscious choices that does redirect evolution, but not in a way that we wanted or intended or anything. Oh, well. Yeah, well, the inventors of tools are rarely trying to affect evolution one way or the other. They're just inventing the tools. Exactly. But if you look, for example, a straightforward example would be a genetic algorithm. Um, or for that matter, any kind of intentional planning process. Let's say that you're in a meeting and you have some objective. We're going to, we want to do X. How are we going to do X? Well, maybe we try this. We might try that. Well, let's try this and see what happens. And then you iterate that. Uh, what would that be? But I, Variation in selection process. It has an explicit target of selection. Mm-hmm. There's variation oriented towards the target. And then there's the preservation or the replication of the best practice. That is an evolutionary process and it is conscious through and through. Okay. So, but, 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 but just a second. Let, let's, so first of all, I think you'd agree that's a case of cultural evolution. There generally a distinction between biological and cultural evolution is like, um, in the case of bio- biology, what's evolving, what's changing is the pool of genetic information. That's biological evolution. It, uh, that process has given birth to cultural evolution, not only in humans, but most spectacularly in humans. And cultural evolution is the evolution of non-genetic information. In our species, tools would be an example. Religious beliefs would be an example. Science would be able, you know, any body of information that uh, develops through kind of selective retention, but is not in the genes, that's cultural evolution. And I, I think you'd accept that distinction, first of all, at least broadly speaking, you might quibble with what I'm saying. But anyway, where I'm heading is to say that cultural evolution is conscious is not controversial. Uh, you seem to think it is. I don't think it is. It is. Uh, who, who is saying it's not? Who is saying it does not involve consciousness? In our species, at least. Who is saying that? So these things are very contextual, as you know, Bob. Whether something is obvious or not, it's actually one of the themes of my book, is that nothing is obvious all by itself. It's only Okay, obvious. but who, who is disagreeing with you on this? There are so many of our colleagues in evolution. Can you name one? Um, Somebody who says cultural evolution in the human species does not involve consciousness. The, well, why the firewall between cultural evolution and genetic evolution in the Wait, seriously though, David, can you name one, somebody who disagrees with you? Who, once we begin talking about cultural evolution, says that there's no conscious element. Right. Okay, well, for the sake of argument, let me concede you that point and say, okay, maybe that is obvious in the context of cultural evolution, but then uh, the next thing I want to say is, um, uh, when we think about cultural evolution as something which is both a product of genetic evolution and a evolutionary process in its own right, uh, when we integrate it with such things as epigenetic evolution, and especially when we consider the Baldwin effect, which is um, dates back to the beginning of the 20th century, as you know, the idea that learning leads uh, evolution, then the idea that, of course, um, uh, cultural evolution is a conscious process, and of course, genetic evolution is not. Uh, there's much, much more overlap uh, between those uh, those uh, two. And so I would say then that if we look at many of the elements associated with the so-called extended evolutionary uh, synthesis, what we'll find is is that um, mechanisms that uh, you know are sometimes called Lamarckian, and which are now uh, much more of a reality than we thought, uh, these 
count as um, um, at least are edging towards conscious processes for the process of genetic and epigenetic, in other words, other evolutionary um, um, uh, processes. So the idea that we have, you know, a consciousness applies only to cultural evolution, not uh, not at all to genetic evolution. No, I'm sorry, no. Okay, well, I, I'm not. I'm not saying. I'm not denying that, that it could apply in some sense to genetic evolution. I was just de- uh, denying that it's controversial that it applies to contra- cultural evolution. So, what's an example then? Well, actually, Bob, let me go back to the beginning of our conversation. Yeah. When, when you began with Teilhard de Chardin, yeah, he talked about evolution as a conscious process. He talked mostly about cultural evolution, and then you said that uh, you know biologists don't think about him. So, uh, but actually, oh, right. but the reasons they don't think highly of him aren't, aren't because of this, aren't because he thought of cultural evolution as involving consciousness in the sense that we've been discussing. That's not why people yell about Teilhard de Chardin. There's a million other red lines he was crossing and hot, but you know, buttons he was pushing. And I can list them if you want, but it, but but it's it, I, I've never heard anybody say the trouble with Teilhard de Chardin then is he thought that Henry Ford was conscious. You know, no. Um, I don't. I don't get. Well, in other words, inventors consciously invent things. So obviously, that's an example of cultural evolution involving consciousness. Nobody's ever complained that Teilhard de Chardin believed that. Let me. um, This is um, interesting, uh, Bob, as far as it goes. But I actually want to go back and to uh, map out our uh, our time together. Uh, We've got about thirty-five more minutes left of the hour. And uh, just as a summer ground I want to cover with you, which includes but goes beyond this, okay, may I do that? Sure. And what I wanted to do, since it's been a while since we talked, and uh, but we go way back all the way to 1993 at the... Um, I'm amazed you remember the year. It might even be earlier, but probably not. Uh, my, first, my first Human Behavior and Evolution Society conference was 91, and I know in the very early going I met you and and... and you you were then evangelizing for group selection, and you were in a in a in a, in a real minority at those particular gatherings in doing that. But but yeah, uh, yeah. But also, I mean, that was evolutionary psychology. It was the uh, I organized the uh, uh, meetings in 1993 at, at Binghamton, uh, Binghamton University. That's where you came. That's when uh, Cosmudi and Tubi and and uh, Barkow they just published the adapted. Um, mind, uh, you had just published then, uh, The Moral Animal? Am I that, right came out, that came out in 94. In 94, but basically this was the world that you were researching. Right. And uh, so it wasn't just group selection. It was uh, it was evolutionary psychology. It was uh, human behavior and evolution. Mm-hmm. And uh, well, Right, but you were known as the group selectionist at these conferences, right? Yeah, well, I'm known as the group selectionist. It's not the only right. thing I do, but... Um, but um, uh, yeah, I've, um, and that's actually the zone, part of the zone of disagreement that I want to, uh, turn to after discussing the zone of agreement. But as part of the zone of agreement, um, uh, when we list your books, um, I mean, you've had a big, uh, uh influence on uh, evolutionary psychology, the concept of morality from an evolutionary perspective. Of course, I mean, what overarches all of those is the tremendous relevance of evolutionary thinking for the human, um, Condition. Evolution should not be confined to biology. Really, it has so much to say about the human condition. It has to say about our individual minds. That's psychology. It has to say something to say about our moral systems. And it has something to say about um, our larger scale cultures, non-zero. Uh, so uh, cultural evolution, the increasing scale of 
society and it has something to say about spirituality and uh, and uh, and religious traditions such as Buddhism or or religion or something else that I've studied uh, in uh, yeah yeah your book Darwin's Cathe- Darwin's Cathedral is a, a good if people are interested in exploring your your thinking there is a good is one place to start right and so I think this is all part of the zone of um, zone of uh, of agreement so in that sense my new book basically uh, carries on that tradition. It says the Darwinian revolution won't be complete until it makes sense of everything associated with the words human culture and policy, um, in addition to the word biology. So I think that's part of our zone of agreement. And as far as whether that's new or old, the way I would describe it is, is that this movement uh, in the first place was delayed for most of the 20th century, then gathered steam, basically started to get back on track in the closing decades of the 20th century. Uh, Ed Wilson's sociobiology is kind of a place marker because it raised such a storm of controversy, its final chapter on humans. But then brave people like Cosmides and Truby and Barco started to, to uh, coin terms such as evolutionary psychology, um, Napoleon Chagnon, Bill Irons started to think about anthropology from an evolutionary perspective that was scandalous at the time, 1980s, 1990s. Uh, today, fast forward to the present, what you find is a growing community, probably numbering in the thousands, that really get it. Uh, for them, the Darwinian revolution is complete because they're thinking about all things human from an evolutionary perspective, just the way we do about a biology, so that's a good, that's the good news. Uh, thousands is a, is a big number, but a tiny fraction, a tiny, tiny fraction of the worldwide academic community, not to speak of the general public, and not to speak of the policy community. And so there we go. Uh, depending upon whether you're part of the lucky few, <laughs> the, um, the, uh, people that, that get it, then the movement is in, full swing, but then there's the rest of us. And that goes especially for the area of policy. If you go into the policy world or the political world and say evolution, you can imagine what you're going to get. So there we go. The need in order to, the need to complete the Darwinian revolution, uh, basically to expand this community and to catalyze that beyond its current it's current numbers and growth trajectory. Okay, so that's one point of your book is to show how many different areas, uh, in your view, evolutionary thinking can be fruitfully applied, right? Uh, absolutely, to in real-world settings, basically. Education, economics, quality of life, you name it, health, sustainability, the environment, all needs to be approached from a... a um, uh, fully rounded evolutionary perspective, which I'm... Well, I was going to say, I think another area we agree uh, on, or another area in which we agree, is, you know, that we're in a point in human, you know, human cultural evolution has uh, carried human social organization to something close to the global level. I mean, individual polities are still, um, you know, at the national level, and the amount of global governance is limited, but I think you and I agree, uh, and there, this is a theme in, the, in your book, that, you know, there are, there are a lot of international policy issues that we need to solve um, cooperatively 
So people need to start identifying more with humankind as a whole, the planet as a whole, and so on. And, and, and this, in fact, is an area where I feel most discouraged at the moment. Um, but uh, is, is it fair to say, now, now I think you would, there's a lot you might bring to that that I wouldn't necessarily bring in the way you frame it and so on. And, uh, but we agree about that, right? Exactly, exactly. And so does just about every other commentator. If you look at our colleagues, um, um, you know, Steve Pinker, um, uh, 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 Peter Turchin, Richard Rangham, Paul Bloom, who you recently interviewed, uh, Mark Pagel, you name it. Anyone who's commenting on this topic is going to comment, is going to be stressing the need for global cooperation and its challenges. So, um, um, and so, um, once again, that's the zone of agreement. Now we enter the zone of disagreement because as far as I'm concerned. That was, that was, that was brief, but I enjoyed it. That was a moment of agreement. Hey, it wasn't brief. It wasn't brief, and it covered and it covered a whole lot of territory. Okay. Let's, not lose, let's let's not lose sight of the fact that we. Have well, and, and I think and I think we agree that in particular, I mean, I, I think you have a more expansive conception of the areas in which evolutionary thinking is really important. I mean, I think there's areas where you want to apply evolutionary thinking, and I'm not sure how much value is added. But I certainly think you and I agree that when you're thinking about human psychology, which is at the heart of all this, because it gives us both the tools with which to forge global cooperation and it gives us the obstacles, some of the obstacles to it. I think you and I certainly agree that understanding human psychology from an evolutionary standpoint, you know, some variant of evolutionary psychology is an important thing. Yeah. And let's actually spend a little bit more time on evolutionary psychology and I'll give you a uh, capsule history and see how much you agree with, with, um, uh, that. As a self-described school of thought, evolutionary psychology is the one that's associated with Cosmides and Truby and Pinker, and it places a great emphasis on massive modularity, and it set itself... Of, of the mind, meaning that the mind has a lot of kind of somewhat specialized tools that interact with one another, as opposed to being a highly centralized CEO model, but go ahead. Yeah, the mind is like a jukebox, basically. Yeah, it's not, it's not a general purpose computer with a, with a von Neumann architecture. Yeah. Right, right. Many, many adaptations to the challenges of survival and reproduction in our ancestral past that evolved by genetic evolution and then get invoked by um, environmental, um, environmental cues. It self-consciously set itself apart from what are called the standard social science model, which were all the blank slate traditions, Skinnerian, Skinner behaviorism and psychology, Margaret Mead, Clifford Geertz, the idea that, that cultures and individuals are in some sense open-ended, plastic, capable of basically adapting to their environments in the, in the near term was cast away from evolutionary psychology. It was an extremely polarizing event. Um, and, and was very conscious about setting that, um, uh, setting that, uh, up. And I think that what's happened since then, it's in part for that reason that the budding study of cultural evolution associated with people like Pete Richardson and Rob Boyd, um, Marcus Feldman and so on was separate and, and partially at odds with evolutionary psychology because what is cultural evolution, but exactly, um, uh, 
part of the standard social science model or something open-ended with cultural evolution, new things evolve. They're not just the triggering of, of modules. And so what's happened since in the intervening decades, and it really shouldn't have had to happen in the first place, is, is, a, is a growing together again, a middle ground, basically, where we can see that human psychology has both a modular component and an open-ended uh, open component. And I draw an analogy with the immune system. If you look at the immune system, it has what's called an innate component, which is massively modular, and an adaptive component, the ability of our antibodies to evolve defenses during the lifetime of the individual. Uh, the process of antibody formation is an evolutionary process, variation in antibodies and the selection of those that bind to antigens. And so if you think about the human capacity to learn and then to transmit that culturally, it too has a innate component, which is massively modular, and an adaptive component, which is capable of adapting over the short term, the lifetime of individuals carried forward into generations. So now we have something, I think, that uh, that is uh, much more complete and includes this open-ended component associated with with um, a Skinner and the more open-ended anthropological uh, traditions, and that's a great thing. That's a maturation. But uh, I think that it's... Okay. Um, Can I interrupt you and be clear on, on and get clear on, uh, make sure I understand what you're saying. Um, the modular view of the mind was thought to preclude and does not, in fact, preclude. It has to do with cultural evolution and, and kind of being in the degree of amenability to cultural evolution or what? Well, something like a blank slate, something like a blank well, slate, whereby whereby a person or a culture can yeah. can rapidly adapt to its environment in open-ended fashion. That means the production of new things that did not exist in the past, okay? Well, I don't think anybody, I don't think Tubi or Cosminas or anybody ever would have said we can't have new things. I mean, I think what, what evolutionary psychologists in general 20 years ago and maybe now, but um, and actually regardless of whether they had a particularly modular view of the mind, although most did, I think they'd be skeptical of things like uh, B.F. Skinner in his novel Walden 2 acting as if through the simple administering of positive reinforcement or whatever, we can basically extinguish things like jealousy, right? I mean, I mean, and I remember, uh, you know, Martin Daly, a real pioneer in evolutionary psychology, saying to me, He's saying we're not saying that there's actually anything you can't do. We're not saying there are any limits. You can, in principle, you know, if, even if you have to stick electrodes in the brain, however dramatic the manipulation has to be, there's obviously going to be, you know, there are, in principle, ways you can make humans radically different than they are. We're just saying that a lot of people overestimate how easy it's going to be. I think that was the basic position. I don't recall anyone ever saying people can't change, people aren't at all malleable. Yeah, well, we can, um, 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 I think that um, uh, I want to make sure that we budget our time. <clears throat> uh, uh, well, don't worry, I don't have a super strict out time, and I don't think you do, so, but, 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 um, but I do want to be, I just, I'm just trying to be clear on what you're saying is, has, is new here, what, 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 
it sounded like you were saying there was something that for a long time people were confused about and now they're clear about. And I just want to know now what is it that more people are clear about? So I was uh, I was recently at a, a conference dedicated to the blank slate uh, in uh, Italy early this um, early this uh, year. And uh, the point that I always like to make is that if you go back just to evolutionary standard evolutionary biology of the modern synthesis variety, um, it has a blank slate assumption. The way people like me and my colleagues function when we're thinking about um, adaptation in non-human species, we, we ask the question, um, what would this species be like if it was well adapted to survive and reproduce in its environment? And the reason behind that um, uh, that reasoning is because we're, we're assuming basically that, that there's heritable variation for just about everything. Mm-hmm. And there's also enough time for natural selection to act so that what we see is the product of natural selection. So the assumption of heritable variation is basically a blank slate assumption, okay? A blank slate assumption. Now, we know that that is not true, strictly speaking. We know that not everything varies. We know that some things are, you know, more likely than others, and there's constraints and developmental constraints and all of the kind of stuff that Stephen Jay Gould loved to, uh, loved to talking about. But to a first approximation, we think that that's a, a useful way of thinking. It's called natural selection thinking, adaptationist thinking. We easily ba- we easily back away from it, but it is a blank slate assumption. So now, if you think about, I, I don't totally understand what you mean by that. But if it's not essential, go ahead. I don't understand why that's a blank to believe. It's basically that genetic evolution is a blank slate, and so a species can evolve. If a, if a species has heritable variation in anything, yeah. then then uh, then uh, selection will adapt it to its environment, and so basically the genetic material is is malleable to the extent that it is heritable, and then it will take whatever shape is imposed upon it by. Well, by the, the, gene, the gene pool is malleable. The the aggregate of genetic characteristics is certainly malleable. Otherwise, adaptation can't happen. Yeah. Malleability. When when, right. when you think about okay. the blank slate assumption, the blank slate traditions in in psychology and anthropology, it was malleability. Right? Individuals can become anything. Cultures can become anything. Uh, I see what you're saying. You're saying at a different level, it's blank slateism. It's all. I see. There, I would say you're almost using blank slateism like metaphorically, but but. I just want to be clear, we're not talking about the same, same kind of blank slateism that Steve Pinker complains about in the book, The, bank, the Blank Slate, which is well, I am. I am. the blank slate. Uh, well, and uh, uh, yes, I am. <laughs> I am. Well, very- well, okay, but I mean, you, you may complain about that, but, but again, Steve would not deny, I mean, if you're saying, but wait, if you believe in standard adaptationist thinking, um, about, uh, you know, evolution, then that's blank slateism. You can say that. You can take the blank slate label as applied to the mind and say, now I'm going to apply it to this, but they're not the same thing. In other words, one could very coherently and without self-contradiction be a blank slater in one realm and not in the other. They're not the same thing, right? You could, you could have a blank slatist view of the mind and be an adaptationist, you could be an adaptationist and not have a blank slateist view of the mind, right? Um, well, this becomes, I think, quite salient to some of the problems of our age, which we want to get to. Okay, I'll shut up. Go ahead, get to them. 
I'm not trying to duck it, but I am trying to manage our time, knowing that we don't have to end in a uh, in an hour. And just invite me back on for another hour if you want to take a deep dive. Happy to do it. I mean, in fact, there's a whole other realm. You, you mentioned direction and purpose and evolution. I'd like to spend I'd like to spend an hour on that. Um, so, go, but go ahead with getting back to our the problems we have to solve. And I'm going to put masking tape. Well, when you look no, at, um, I actually have tape here. I could tape my mouth. I could do that. I've never done it before. I can do it. Oh, no, I would not want to be the first. Uh, okay. um, the tape is right here, though. <laughs> okay, go ahead. I dare you. <laughs> I can do this. I'll do anything for ratings. I'm not going to. I may take it off at some point. Maybe in a couple. Then we can color it with a magic marker and lift it a little bit further up, and you'll look like Hitler. <laughs> You're going to be yanking it off in uh, no time here is that just when people talk in everyday terms about problems, why do we have problems with the tobacco industry, the sugar industry, the gun industry, all of these things running amok, what are they doing but they're following incentives? And there's incentive structures, so basically that some things are more rewarding than others, financially rewarding or rewarding. And and do you know both people and industries are going to bend in the direction of what is most rewarding. And so if you want something to happen, then you need to organize the incentive structures in order to, um, in order to cause that to happen. There'll have to be regulations or, or, or whatever, shaming, whatever, because people are, and, and organizations are plastic, flexible enough. So they're going to flow where the money is, to put it crudely, or where the incentives are. Well, there's something very blank slatish about that, that we're going to do, we basically, that we're sufficiently flexible to do anything that works, pays, whatever, and that this is responsible for our problems. But I cannot keep a straight face any longer, so now you need to remove that tape. Good, because I was about to intervene anyway. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to carry this on endlessly, but it's there's something blank slatish in a kind of metaphorical sense, but but... Uh, but again, I mean, the, the, you know, Steve Pinker, who wrote the book complaining about blank slateism, was not complaining about that. He, he considers the dynamic you just described entirely compatible with his conception of human nature, which he considers not to be blank slateism. Maybe this isn't a critical point, but I, I do think, I mean, I mean, one thing you do a lot is, is, uh, you, you, you know, you, you do a lot of applying terms and uh, descriptive dynamics that are originally confined to one level of organization to another level of organization, which is basically something I like. You know, my first book, Three Scientists and Their Gods, get, got into general systems theory. You remember that term? Yeah. Which is because I do think there's a lot of value in saying, you know, in some ways, uh, 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 DNA is to a cell as a brain is to an organism and, and, and so on. You do a lot of that kind of thing. I just, I just think that, um, and the way you're doing it now, uh, I think, well, maybe I'm not. Anyway, I, I, I'm just trying to be careful about uh, The reason how- that it's legitimate and needed is because, and here's another thing that's in our zone of agreement, um, no matter what the scale, it's a matter of cooperation and coordination. It doesn't matter if it's a single pair or a small group or, or a nation. Uh, what's needed in order for any social unit to function as a cooperative and coordinated unit is cooperation.
cooperation and coordination, of course, and that means also the suppression of various disruptive activities that take place within the unit. And so that's a problem for a small group, and it's a problem for a large group. Of course, how you solve the problem uh, very much differs with scale. But at the end of the day, it boils down to the evolution of cooperation and coordination and the need for that to take place at ever larger scales. Now, that will be part of our zone of agreement, I think. Mm-hmm. Right? As I understand it, yes. And it turns out that um, this is scale independent. And let me make that concrete because uh, I was honored and privileged to work with Eleanor Ostrom, who won the Nobel Prize in 2009. And she actually, despite that, she's not as well known as she needs to be. So a little bit more about her. Uh, you probably know about her, but I'll bet many of your readers don't. So she was actually not an economist. She was a political scientist, and she studied the famous tragedy of the commons, this idea that if a group is drawing upon a common pool resource, then inevitably they will over-exploit it. And uh, what she showed by actually studying common pool resource groups was that that was not the case. At least some of those groups managed to avoid the tragedy of the commons, and they did so because they possessed what she called certain core design principles. Um, now, you had to have these principles in order to work as a as a group. So there's plenty of groups that did not work, did not avoid the tragedy of the commons. Some did, and her great achievement that earned the Nobel Prize in economics was to, to delineate these core design um, uh, principles. And I'm now going to list them. Um, and then I'm going to interpret them from a evolutionary uh, perspective. So, uh, and uh, the readers out there, um, this is what I tell my audiences, so I'll ask your readers, uh, please uh, have a group in mind. Think of a group that you know well, that's important to you, uh, might work well, might work poorly, and then see if these core design principles, which uh, um, Lynn Ostrom articulated for a certain kind of group, might also apply to the group that you have in mind. So the groups that work well, uh, number one, uh, they had a strong sense of identity and purpose. They knew that there was a group, that it was doing something important, that they were a member. Who else was a member? But the boundary of the resource was. This was essential for the group to function well. Number two, proportional costs and benefits. It's not sustainable for some members of the group to get the benefits and others to support the cost. There has to be a sense in what you get from the group is proportional to what you give. Number three, decision-making needs to be open and inclusive. It's not going to work if some members of the group get to call the shots and other members of the group are not party to those decisions. need not be strict consensus, but there must be some sense in which decision-making is open and inclusive. Number four, there must be monitoring of agreed-upon behaviors. Uh, We have to know what we're supposed to do, and if we don't do it, that has to be something that's noticed. Uh, Number six, number five, um, graduated sanctions. If you're not doing what you're supposed to, then uh, something needs to be done about it. But it need not be harsh at first. A friendly reminder is usually sufficient to keep us in solid citizen mode, and yet it must also be uh, uh, possible to escalate when necessary. And the story that Lynn loved to tell about that had to do with the lobster gangs of Maine. So in Maine, there's many bays, and each bay is basically owned by a gang of lobstermen. And uh, 
those colorful buoys, the reason that they're colorful is that they indicate the individual identity of each lobsterman, and that means that they know if some interloper comes in and puts lobster pots down in their bay, they know it by the color of the um, of the buoys. So what do they do? Um, and Lynn always used to laugh when she told the story. They tie a bow around the buoy, and she said, "Can you imagine?" And there's a burly lobsterman tying a bow around the bowie. And yet, of course, that's just the beginning. That's the, the gentle reminder that they better leave. And if they don't, of course, you know that they're going to escalate. They're going to do and, and okay, so, so, and how did this, this solve the kind of um, collective action problem in, in, in some sense? Or, or I mean, these, these, get, what, what was the, what was the uh, problem that this was solving? The danger of overfishing lobsters or, or and, and depleting the, the supply uh, in the long run or what? And other coordination and other coordination uh, problems. So in the first place, you keep some individuals out so that the, the group of users is, um, is, um, um, is commensurate with the resource. Then they have to regulate their own fishing. They also have to make it equitable among themselves. So, for example, some areas of the bay might be more productive than others. And so they'll probably have some kind of rotational scheme mm-hmm. so that everyone has a shot at the best uh, uh, locations and so on and so on and so forth. So there's basically there's regulation of the group members and then there's the definition of the group in the first place. And this one design principle of graduated sanctions is basically start gentle and then go up from there. Um, in other contexts, especially traditional societies, it's gossip and uh, which is starting out gentle. If somebody uh, misbehaves in a group, uh, first thing that happens is people talk about it. And then that's actually usually enough for the person to want to retain their reputation. Uh, Richard Rangham on your show talks about his uh, his um, execution hypothesis that uh, in um, hunter-gatherer groups, um, uh, of course, that's the final step is that you just kill the person. That's the uh, but before then, of course, it's all kill the troublemaker, uh, the, the person who's who's, uh, who's doing things that come in. Great expense of the group or, or yeah. people in the group, yeah. Yeah, and so so uh, now number uh, six, after graduated sanctions, uh, fast and fair conflict resolution. Uh, conflicts will occur. They need to be resolved quickly and in a manner that's regarded as fair by all parties. Most party in a dispute uh, feel they have a point of view. Mm-hmm. So typically you'll get some uh, respected person or group of people to educate, and and, uh, and then people will go along with uh, – with that. Number seven, authority to self-govern. Uh, you, uh, the group has to have the elbow room, the authority to manage its own affairs. Otherwise, if it's being bossed around from the outside, then all bets are off. And then number eight is what's really important and which uh, gets back to scale independence. Number eight is appropriate relations with other groups, which embodies the same, the same uh, principles as relations within groups, because these core design principles are scale independent. They're needed for intergroup relations in just the same way as intragroup relations. And this is called polycentric governance in the scheme mm-hmm. of Eleanor Ostrom. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, so there it is. Okay. So can I just uh, provide a little context, just back up a little? So, uh, so first of all, um, the tragedy of the commons, I think the term was, coined by Garrett Hardin, who I believe wrote an essay about, famous essay about it. Now, I don't think, I don't, you know, and what he was saying was, 
if each, you know, um, owner of an animal herd, if they have a common area that they graze and each one um, is motivated uh, by self-interest and has no cause for self-restraint, they will overgraze uh, the commons to the detriment of all, I guess, because eventually just there won't be any grass and it'll be bad for everybody. Now, I don't think he was so much predicting that you won't find people who solve the problem. He was identifying a problem that has to be solved in certain kinds of cases. It's a, I guess it's a subset of a collective action um, problem where there has to be some kind of implicit or explicit agreement or coordination um, and and some measure of either imposed or voluntary and agreed upon self-restraint or something. There has to be a way of solving the problem. And human you know, there's a lot of environmental problems that are in this, you know, if you let, if each person, it's cheaper for each industrialist to just pollute without restraint, but if everybody does that, they all wind up breathing bad air and so on. A lot of examples of this, uh, Garrett Hardin was identified that his, his formulation of the problem became a kind of classic. And you're identifying, I, I, I take it to, to, to be the case that, uh, well, it sounds like she was almost identifying effective groups in general, but among other things, groups, that can solve this kind of problem. What are the what are the characteristics of groups that solve this kind of problem? Is that right? Um, yeah, and uh, and um, um, so uh, Austrian won the Nobel Prize for a reason. Um, what transpired in the economic profession was, in the first place, that the, the whole tragedy of the commons, identified by Hardin, who was an ecologist in 1968, is obscure to to, um, economists because of the invisible hand metaphor. The invisible hand metaphor says that if everyone pursues their self-interest, it'll turn out to be good for the, for the, uh, to benefit the common good, as if led by an invisible hand. So the very idea that there might be a tragedy of the commons is not, not invisible, but certainly not at the forefront of economic thinking. Uh, given that there is going to be a tragedy at the commons, the main economic solutions are to privatize, if at all possible. And so, but I, I would say that even when I was an undergraduate, uh, which was a long time ago, in economics, there was certainly emphasis on what were called negative externalities. That is to say, if you just let people do what they'll do by their nature, and they produce bad things for the group as a whole, such as pollution, then you need things like government regulation or some sort of some sort of solution that's external to the market. So it's not as if economists have not been thinking about this problem for a very long time. In fact, I think before the SA tragedy of commons was written. Right. That's the second solution is top down regulation. So the two solutions um, um, current was privatize the privatize the common or impose top down Regulation. What was so new about what Ostrom did was the idea is that these groups could regu- self-regulate, basically. They could regulate themselves. That's what earned her the Nobel, uh, the Nobel, uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so, uh, now, uh, when you think of this from a evolutionary perspective and imagine, uh, two groups, one group that implements these core design principles super well and another group not so much, okay? Mm-hmm. Have those two groups in mind, and then imagine a member of the group that's uh, self-serving, basically, and wants to gain at the expense of other members of the group. 
and ask yourself the question, how well will that individual succeed in those two groups, in the group in which the core design principles are implemented well or poorly? And it's, it's a no-brainer, basically, that the, um, um, the first group is uh, well-protected against disruptive, self-serving behavior. Mm-hmm. Uh, not so the other kinds of groups. Also, you might say, well, these design principles are restricted to common pool resource groups, or might they exist for all groups? Is, is there some sense in which cooperation is a common pool resource in just about any group where people need to cooperate um, uh, would, uh, would benefit from these core design uh, principles? So the answer is yes. I think it's intuitively yes, but a lot of evolutionary theory tells us that it should be yes. Also, uh, we can say that as a species, um, um, we're well adapted to employ these core design principles. If you look at the egalitarianism that uh, uh, Richard Wrangham talks about uh, in hunter-gatherer uh, groups, it's basically that's what we're the way our minds are built. And in fact, the entire concept of morality that you've thought hard about is uh, something which uh, is uh, um, uh, implements these core design principles. We the norms of what should be done. Those are the agreed upon behaviors. We monitor it. And then if people, uh, if people break those norms, then uh, there's consequences. So, so really the whole concept of, of, of uh, moral psychology is, is, is something that is basically causes human groups to be as cooperative as they are by implementing these, these core design principles. So what Ostrom more or less derived from a political science perspective in the context of a certain kind of group turn out to be way, way more general, way more general. It has to do with really cooperation in all species. And uh, and our history is a highly cooperative species. Okay. So, and your point is the generality. Um, I mean, let me ask you I, maybe a related question. So uh, you are evangelizing in, in this book in part for the value of bringing a kind of explicitly Darwinian perspective to a lot of different kinds of problems. But by Darwinian, you, you know, you mean you mean evolutionary in a broad sense. In other words, a sense that applies to cultural evolution and uh, and, and not just biological evolution. And so, for example, you. Um, uh, one thing you would do is you describe in the book the Toyota system of manufacturing. You know why Toyota is a famously effective, efficient corporation, and you draw—I forget exactly which analogies—but uh, probably more than one. I mean, you probably say, "Well, look at the way they do things." I mean, it may have something in common with the way an immune system functions, or, or with the way a, an actual organism functions, and. And like, I certainly, I, I certainly agree there, that there are analogies like that. And I think there's a reason for them. I mean, as I said, I'm kind of a fan of general systems theory. And, and, and what that tells us is that there are, um, there are principles and constraints and realities that apply at multiple levels of organization. And to some, in some cases, it doesn't matter whether the mode of adaptation is genetic evolution or cultural evolution. They're still facing the same issues. I mean, the collective action problem is faced. Uh, at the level of uh, individual 
animals. If, if a given gene gets too predatory, you know, if all genes are, 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 are pursue their own interest at the expense of other genes, that could be bad for them all and so on. So it's a long-winded way of saying that there are such analogies. At the same time, Toyota presumably came up with their system without thinking in evolutionary terms, right? So it's like, it's not as if you have to be thinking in Darwinian terms to solve all the problems that may in some sense have uh, a solution that can be characterized in evolutionary terms. Does that make sense? It makes total sense. It makes total sense. Evolution results in things that work without knowing anyone knowing why they work. Of course, we know that's true with genetic evolution. Nobody knows. No organism, including ourselves, know how our genetic adaptations work. Right. And it works to a very large extent with cultural evolution. This is the flip side of cultural evolution as a conscious process. It's also an unconscious process. Many inadvertent social experiments, a few that succeed. And so when you look at examples like Toyota, and there's many of them, as you would expect from cultural evolution, that's called convergent evolution, which is takes place for cultural evolution just as much as genetic evolution. You find that people basically stumble upon what works, and then because they tweak it and they tinker with it and so on, that that gets better. It diversifies to an extent, and then typically comes up against boundaries beyond which it is unknown. And so it's like so many species, basically, that have evolved in different areas and succeed to a degree. So the idea that that uh, culturally and also personally, because the idea that the individual person is an evolving unit will actually get astray into your meditation uh, territory. Uh, Bob, I spent a lot of time with uh, mindfulness-based therapy mm-hmm. science. Uh, mm-hmm. which is right next door to meditation. You could really think of therapeutic methods, especially of the mindfulness variety, mm-hmm. as a managed process of cultural um, evolution, mm-hmm. personal, personal evolution. Really interesting. And there's some very high-powered colleagues of mine that are thinking along these lines and thinking that that adds value to the, to the, um, to the way we think about therapy and, uh, therapy and, uh, um, uh, uh, a training. Now I've lost my own train of thought, but uh, well, I mean, the, the original question was about like, uh, did Toyota really need to be thinking in Darwinian terms? Granted that that uh, some of these uh, solutions are are like solutions that were arrived at via um, evolution, and granted that you can say that since Toyota's solution is evolutionary, because it, it by definition is a product of cultural evolution, at the same time. The people at Toyota didn't need to be thinking in evolutionary terms to solve the problem. This is super interesting, Bob, because because um, uh, it's, it's, let me just take over here because it is so very um, interesting. Um, you can any entity, a species or a culture or a corporation, can evolve to become well adapted to its current environment without necessarily being adaptable to future environments. And I'm just starting to read some literature now. So interesting. And the, and by the way, the business and management literature is so fascinating from this perspective. And so what this literature is telling us is that it's very, very unusual for a corporation to live more than 40 years. Hmm. And I mean, super unusual. You can almost count on two hands the number of major corporations which are older 
than wow. 40 years old. What a puzzle that is, because while they're successful, they have everything going for them. They've got the resources, they've got the talent, they've got everything. So why is it that they have such a short lifetime, shorter than the lifetime of an individual person? And the reason is, is that um, um, what it takes to do whatever they're doing well, their current market niche, is very, very different than what it takes to innovate and and develop new market. That's left to other companies. And so it really is like a creative destruction process that Schumpeter talked about of a between-firm process. It's really a form of cultural group selection. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about that. Like if that's not cultural group selection, what would be? But in any case, the the uh, if you look at the um, – but out of that kind of crucible, you do get some business cultures which are not only well adapted to their current environments, but they're also adaptable, also adaptable. And then this what's, little, a, what's a good example of a company that's like that? IBM. I was going to say, I mean, they're, they're, they're not dominant the way they used to be, but they're still around. And they're still around and they're colonizing new markets. But the way they have to do it is by, this is their own language, being ambidextrous. What it means is, is that the whole method for carrying on their existing businesses has to be different than their method for incubating new businesses, different rules altogether. And so it's only by being ambidextrous because you have to do two things. You have to stay alive in the current market and then you have to adapt to new markets. Those are sufficiently different from each other Mm -hmm. that unless you're ambidextrous, you cannot, cannot, uh, cannot do it. Okay, so we're, we're, we're um, you know, we, we, we are nearing the end of our time. I think we should have another conversation, but I think you should at least give people a sneak preview of the part that you think we disagree on, and then maybe we could have a more extended conversation about that. I mean, we've had some, we've obviously had some areas of disagreement, but I don't think any of them were quite what you had in mind, right? Yeah, so I'll finish up one thing in one minute, and then I'll introduce our next conversation in only one other minute, so two more minutes. Okay. Uh, the policy implications of all of this, which I think will appeal to your complex systems interest, is that there's two things that don't work, cannot work, and only one thing that can work. One thing that doesn't and cannot work is laissez-faire. It is simply not the case that the unregulated pursuit of self-interest benefits the common good. Forget about it. The other thing that doesn't work is centralized planning because our systems are too complex to be figured out by any group of experts. And so the two major policy narratives, laissez-faire and centralized planning, neither one works or can work. So what can work, uh, the only thing that does work, is some sort of managed process of cultural evolution. There has to be some sense in which we have there's some target of selection, variation oriented around the target, and then the replication of best uh, practices. And that's what you see with successful change efforts. You see that again and again, no matter how it is framed. And we can actually go back to interesting periods of history. I'm currently I'm, I'm uh, having a conversation with someone about the history of pragmatism, the philosophical tradition of pragmatism, mm-hmm. which gave rise, to, gave rise to people like John Dewey, and also to the advisors of Woodrow Wilson, who was a globalist. Um, uh, so, so interesting that, uh, 
Uh, and of course, they're not using the word evolution or thinking of it that way. But that is what they're doing because that's the only thing that can can um, uh, can work. And so, elaborating upon that, I think that basically provides a kind of a policy blueprint uh, uh, that uh, steers this um, um, third way, as I call it, between laissez-faire and centralized uh, planning, which can be implemented in many contexts. So, that is end of that. And now, one more minute which, of course, has to do with multi-level selection, group selection. And, Bob, I have to describe for your readers how extraordinary it is. Uh, and I've recently written a, a critique of Richard Langham's book, uh, The Goodness Paradox, and you had him on your... On your right. People can see my conversation with him. You have issues with his um, his characterization of his theory. You think his theory is more group selectionist than he realizes. Well, not just me. You know, I'm not the Lone Ranger. So, so uh, I actually list in my in my essay uh, all of the people that he cites on behalf of his argument. Christopher okay. Baum. Christopher Baum, among a uh, uh, chief among them. Yeah. Um, uh, plus uh, uh, so many others. It's basically the rogues gallery. Of, uh, of evolutionists thinking about all of this stuff, which he cites on his um, uh, uh, behalf. And do you know, about half of them think explicitly in terms of multi-level selection, including people like Chris Baum and, and, uh, and uh, Peter Turchin, Joe Henrik, those were just a few, of course, Pete Richardson, Rob Boyd. There's a whole crew that think explicitly about, uh, frame this, basically, in terms of selection with and among groups. And then there's mm-hmm. the other half, which includes Rangham himself, yourself. Um, um, you touched upon it briefly in your interview with him. and in your interview with Paul Bloom, I wasn't expecting it on tribalism, but at the very beginning it's just like, you're not talking about group selection, are you? Oh, no, no, we're not going to talk about that. And then off you go. Well, wait, who said, who said you're not talking about group selection? You did. I, mean, I, I am strictly speaking agnostic. Group selection can happen. It can happen. It can happen in our species. Um, but there are certainly species in which it's a lot easier for it to happen, as you, you'd agree, right? Uh, and um, so, so I'm, and even in the moral animal, I mean, I'm probably a little more open to group selection's possibilities in the human species than I was in. But I think even if you read the moral animal, I say it is possible under some circumstances. Uh, and that's still my position, broadly speaking. Anyway, as you well, said, I mean, I mean, this is largely an argument we'll have in the next episode. But 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 so go, just go ahead and finish. So the point I'm trying to make is actually not to personify, not to personify, to talk about the scientific community that is thinking about the same problems, mm-hmm. publishing in the same journals, hopefully reading each other's work, and they are roughly evenly divided between some who, um, uh, and of course, they're not total deniers about group selection, but they think of it as a kind of a marginal concept, mm-hmm. certainly not mm-hmm. a concept that they are invoking themselves, mm-hmm. Okay? Mm-hmm. Um, whereas others would take the very same arguments that are being made and to, and, and to basically uh, uh, describe them as invoking group selection right away. So it's not a matter of, um, uh, it, basically it's a matter of people um, um, invoking group selection in every way except using the words. And I have, uh, in our next conversation, I can give example after example, including from Richard uh, Langham's uh, 
Mangan's book. So it's absolutely extraordinary that you could take a, a concept this important mm-hmm. and in a single scientific community have this almost like an agreement to disagree. Um, that um, um, So this remains unresolved, and it is immensely confusing to the general public. What is the general public to think? Well, they don't even know group selection even. I mean, they're, they're, we've already lost. We, you and I just lost a lot of this audience because we were, were using it. We haven't even defined it. We don't have time to this time. But I think we should agree to have a conversation just about multi-level selection, maybe save some time at the end for the direction purpose issue, because I think that's fascinating. But in any event, I think we should pretty much leave it here and just say that, you know, broadly speaking, the kinds of issues uh, group selection touches on is, um, you know, first of all, what is responsible for the uh, obvious uh, examples of group cohesion you see in human society? How did that happen? There are whole corporations that are in some ways like organisms. There are nations, there are religious groups, there are villages, there are, you know, and so on. Uh, how did this come to be? And, I can um, and, and what is human nature, you know, uh, to what extent is human nature make it really easy or not? to give rise to that kind of cohesion, even even if it involves self-sacrifice. There's a lot of issues here. I think we don't have much time, but... Uh, uh, just, time enough, just time enough for me to quote one of my favorite authors and thinkers on the topic. I want you to guess who this is, okay? Okay. Okay. Here's let, me guess, uh, let me guess in advance. It's Ed Wilson. Nope, you're wrong about that. Okay, well, maybe I'll do better after I hear the quote. Yep, okay, I hope so. Throughout history... Polities that have efficiently harnessed the latest in non-zero-sum technology have tended to survive and flourish, while rival polities fell by the wayside. Who said that? That sounds like Robert Wright, the brilliant thinker Robert Wright, is it? Yes, it is. Oh, my God. Robert Wright said that. Now, oh, my God. Was, was Robert Wright invoking group selection in his own mind? Certainly, in cultural evolution, group selection absolutely definitely happens, yes, but that's cultural evolution we're talking about. Oh, boy, here we go again, this firewall between cultural evolution and... Okay, 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 okay. So I think we've got people on the edge of their seats. I think, I think we've gotten to a point where our next conversation can be pay-per-view, and we will make so much money we can both retire, and go to the same vacation island and keep arguing, but let's leave it there... Folks, this is going to be the thriller in Manila. <laughs> so, so uh, thank you, David. Wait, let's let's plug your book again. There's a lot of fascinating stuff in this book. For example, you mentioned John Dewey. John Dewey is in this book. Yeah, a little bit, yep. Pragmatism yep. is in this book. Yep, yep. Immune Toyota. Toyota is in this book. Toyota is in this book. Psychopathic chickens are in this book. Psychopathic chicken in this book. This view of life, completing the Darwinian revolution by David Sloan Wilson, published by Pantheon, which, by the way, published the book Non-Zero. There you go. Uh, so thank you, David, and we will uh, get around scheduling our next, uh, our next chat. All right. Take care. Thank you. Before you go, a quick message from the suits at Meaning of Life TV. Meaning of Life will always be free for you to watch and listen to, and we don't even go the NPR route of guilting you into donating during Pledge Week. But we do have a small request. If you enjoy Meaning of Life programming, rate and review us on iTunes. The iTunes algorithm weighs positive reviews heavily, so taking a few minutes to rate and review us will help more people find out about our shows. Also, of course, we encourage you to subscribe to our Twitter and Facebook feeds. Thank you.